Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. We are going to be talking about Parshat Vetchanan today, which those of you who studied with me yesterday know that um, this is a Parsha that you probably know actually very well, but don't know that you know very well. Um, so the the second recitation of the Ten Commandments is in this week's Parsha, as well as the Shema. Um, so we are not going to look at either of those pieces, and I'm going to let Rabbi Shapiro introduce the verse that we are looking at. Um, but I just wanted you to know that those two pieces are here in this week's Parsha. And the, the most interesting piece, and we talked a little bit about this last week, um, the most interesting piece of <clears throat> Deuteronomy in general is that we get certain things for the first time, but a lot of things we're getting for a second time through Moses's eyes. And if you look in the Ten Commandments in this week's Parsha, you'll see some differences. You'll see the difference in the way that... Um, that Shabbat is spoken about and the way that parents are spoken about, uh, just as two examples. Also, the way that, um, that God is seen as one God, there's a little bit more detail as to what that means. So interesting to just look at that if you, um, if, if you want to see the comparisons between the two. You can probably also just Google different the two different sets of the Ten Commandments and see the differences. But um, if you wanted to look, they are in this week's Parsha. Um, but I'll let Rabbi Shapiro talk to us about the actual part of our Parsha that we are going to be looking at. As we have often done in this class, we're not going to be focusing in on the greatest hits piece so much. And there, there was one piece that caught Rabbi Schatz's eye that led to a, a semi-coherent rant from me. And she said, oh, good, we'll talk about that. Um, it was not coherent. It was just oh, completely have... in, oh incoherent. Yeah, I'm glad I've 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 strayed all the way back. But but he was very passionate about it, and so it seemed like a good thing for us to teach. So okay, maybe I'll be coherent today. There's a first time for everything. So we are here. Um, we're we're still in sort of the general framework part of the speech. We we talked last week about the larger structure of Dvarim and how it's like Moses' farewell. And he's still here talking like generally about like the teaching and the larger construct of like Torah and tradition and an experience of God. So um, just we're beginning chapter four. Israel, give heed to the laws and rules that I am instructing you to observe so that you may live to enter and occupy the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. So here he's he's talking about, like, why why are we doing this, right? Why should we heed the laws and rules so that you can live, right? So that that it's a a source of life, which we will see a a more well-known framing of that in a moment. Um, and also to be able to enter into the land, because again, the, the narrative framework for this, and we talked about this a bit yes, uh, yesterday, last week as well, that it was given when we were on the other side of the river, right, implying that it, it happened in the past, but it's still Moses' farewell speech on the east side of the Jordan. Why do we, ha- why do we have these rules? To live and so that we can enter the land. Um, I'll also call attention here um, to this phrase, hukim uh, and mishpatim, which are often offered up as um, like 
the laws that we have from the Torah without a given reason and the laws that we have in the Torah that do have a specific reason. Um, that's a tease for the verse we're going to be looking at in a moment. Uh, you shall not add anything to what I command you or take anything away from it, but keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I enjoin upon you. Um, and we referenced this verse last week as well. It's a very recursive conversation we're having. We were talking last week about how it's a retelling of certain parts of the Torah. And this week, we're starting by talking about what we talked about last week as we talk about retelling what happened in the Torah. Um, but particularly interesting, this line, since in Dvarim, as Rabbi Schatz just indicated, in terms of this week's re telling, as it were, of the Ten Commandments, they're slightly different. So it's just interesting that in a book that is a bit of a midrash itself, it's saying, don't add anything, and also don't take anything away. Uh, you saw with your own eyes what God did uh, in the Battle of Baal Peor, that God wiped out from you every person who followed Baal Peor. Idolatry is a bad idea. Uh, while you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today, or as you might recognize from the Torah service, that before the, yeah, Rabbi Shabbos is always happy when I sing, um, that this is the, the line that we say right before we read from uh, the Torah as a part of our, our services, right? And, and, understandable thematically um, everyone who has has been connected with God. You are all alive today. There's some fascinating theology in there that we are not going to get into uh, that I think is a little tricky. Um, I've imparted to you laws and rules. Again, Chukim Umishpatim, as the Lord my God has commanded me, for you to abide in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. Okay. Now here we are getting to the verse. Just one verse. Rabbi Shatz, it's the second straight week that we are only talking about one verse. What does that mean? Well, it's also, there's not really so much, like the, con, the, the context before and after doesn't really like help this verse. So there's no reason to do the verses around it. Oh, really? I actually think, it, I think it's interesting. Well, I just, I disagree. Uh, I think it's interesting because th those pieces, I think I knew, but this piece in terms of why we keep Torah seems to be indicating a very different way of thinking about it. Okay, verse six, chapter four. Here we go. Ushmartem va'asitem, you should, and, and the translation here, as it was last week, flattens it out. Translated, translated says, observe them faithfully, but I would say you should... Keep them and do them. Guard them and do them, right? Uh, not shamor v'zachor, but uh, guard them and do them. Observe them and do them. Um, these law, uh, ki uh, For they are your wisdom and discernment to the eye, before the eyes of uh, the other nations. Asher Yishma'un et Kol Hachukim Ha'ela that will hear about all of these laws, all of these statutes. The Amru, Rak Am Chacham Venavon Hagoy Hagadol Hazeh, that they will then say, Ah, only a wise and great, uh, only a wise and, I don't know, Chacham Venavon. How would you, how would you differently translate? Only a truly wise and discerning uh, great people is this, right? It's, it's when you keep the mitzvot, the other nations will look at us and say, 
gosh golly gee, those Jews sure know what's up. Is my translation into the vernacular. Can you make it a little bit bigger, do you think? I have a hard time doing that on my... Go to the top where the oh. M is in the top right. For Mac. Go to the three dots. Yep. Now zoom into... Oh, the- Zoom! Rabbi Schatz, master of Zoom and master of Zoom. Master of Zooming over Zoom. There you go. Okay, Rabbi Schatz, I'm going to stop talking. Okay. <laughs> Are you sure? Okay. Um, any kushiot on this verse? Uh, it's clearly clearly a verse that, that begs question and also uh, a deepening, as Rabbi Shapiro just did, but a deepening of translation in terms of what some of these words could mean, even though they are translated for us in one particular way below. Yeah, Renee. Well, how will observing it be proof of their wisdom? Great. And, but, and then I have a comment too. It seemed to me that just based on all the other stuff that we were reading that, that Rabbi Shapiro was reading prior, yeah. that, um, that, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu really has an incredible amount of strength because in spite of the fact that he knows that he's not going to see the land, he's still able to convince them that they, the people that they still need to, that it's worth their while to, to keep all the mitzvot and all the other things that he's telling them. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Great. Great. So maybe to Rabbi Shapiro's point, like the verses before maybe do um, help us understand this piece a little bit more. And, and maybe at least if I'm understanding what you're saying clearly, at least how Moshe felt that, that, that which he was seeing um, and then obviously for us writing down <clears throat> that came before this verse, how that, um, what's the word, like trickles down into becoming something that we have to hold, hold on to, to understand this particular verse. Right. Like what you were talking about yesterday, how, yeah. you know, what we get from our previous generations. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is three verses later. Uh, yesterday I taught in my Midrash class. Uh, chapter four, verse nine. So um, there's, you know, it, it, it's interesting to see how, how those two things play together. If you were with me yesterday. Um, okay. I'll go in order of hands, Joanna, Nancy, then Elon. Two things. Yeah. One is all these words for wisdom and then just following in the verse also how they kind of parallel or don't each other. Right. right. So the mitzvot, um, um, somehow have chokhmah in them, and then therefore you will be an am chacham. Yeah. The mitzvot somehow have bina in them, and then you will be navon. So a Beautiful. like we've got three different words for like smart here or wise, and what you know, there's obviously a nuance there. How do we get at that? And then like in one case they're parallel, and in another case they're not. Beautiful. Of all the possible reasons that you could give for observing God's meets vote, I would think like what the other nations think of us should not really factor into why we're observing God's meets vote. What's yeah. this business about being concerned about what other people will think of us? Great. Great. Two very beautiful and poignant points. Uh, and, and I think we will, I think those are, the first point I did not think of at all and I love. And interestingly, this is now the, 
third verse of Deuteronomy that um, someone has made a similar claim about the words being used more poetically than they are in the other four books of the Torah in such a way that they are mirrors almost of, of themselves, right? Being used in different forms. Barrett Hopenstein yesterday mentioned how the different binyanim, the different uh, conjugations of the word are now making that same root mean two separate things. And yet they're both helpful to the meaning of the verse. Interestingly, for those of you who are with us for Tisha B'Av, we focus on a verse that does exactly that. Hashivenu Adonai Elecha Venashuva, right? And then Chadesh Yamenu Kekedem. Though Chadesh Yamenu is not the same root as Kekedem, they're also mirrors of one another in terms of the new and the buf- and the old. Um, so, and, and uh, uh, Rabbi David Kasher and I uh, found that there is a word and grammar for that. It's a contonym. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? No? Okay. Anyway, great. Uh, I'll put it in the chat in the same so you can read it. Okay, Nancy. Well, I also thought like Joanna about that last part of it, about like, why do we care? But um, listening to the other verses actually struck me in, in all these verses. There's, it seems to me there's a lot of carrot and stick, right? Mm. Like, like you, you know, those people were struck down, you weren't. And then, you know, all these reasons for, for abiding by these laws. And then here, although I'm not sure what, that the argument is that strong, but, you know, you, you follow them faithfully and the whole rest of the world will think you're really smart. So it just seems like a lot of, you know, smiting you as the, you know, stick. And then there's all these carrots to, to, you know, help you want to follow these laws. Yeah. And, and, and to your point and to, um, Joanna's point, you know, why does that even matter? Right. Why does it matter for, uh, why shouldn't we just want to, observe Torah because it's meaningful to us why should we need why should we need that you know incentive to make us want to do these things or or um not guilt but uh I don't know what the word word would be oh my dad is here hold on one second Rabbi Shapiro just take it away hold on one second hi Moradell bye Moradell um I, well, I think say, the other, I oh. think the other part is fear, right? You know, like, hey, those other people are not alive anymore. So it's sort of like, why do you need the fear also in order to make you want to follow the laws? Right. I mean, I, I would flip around Rabbi Shabbat's question completely. <laughs> I mean, I, I think by, by nature, and we hear all the time about how we are a stiff necked people, uh, you know, what? What's what's the what's an effective incentive, right? It, how do, how do we actually keep folks on the straight and narrow, right? Moshe is about is saying goodbye. I think he's kind of casting about, trying to figure out <laughs> how to how how to get us to keep doing the things he hopes we're gonna do. And and I I agree. You know, this was I think a big part of what caught our collective rabbinic eye in terms of how how interesting it is that. The argument is you should observe these faithfully so that other people will see how awesome you are is is a fascinating one. Uh, yeah, Ilan. I was going to bring uh, the same point up. Uh, and, and I would say that actually 
uh, this is if in fact this was the reasoning it hasn't worked pretty well it hasn't really worked that well because surely that great nation is a wise and discerning people has led us to getting our asses kicked for 2000 years so the, to do it to please other people really didn't really didn't work that well for us we should have been doing it because it was the right thing to do yeah for sure and, I, and oh, I also- oh rabbi shots you're back Hi, I just had to, I, I got a new coffee table. My dad came to see if I needed a drill before he goes all the way home. And then he would bring the drill back. So he's oh, here in the love background. More, love Moradale. <laughs> yes, we all love, we all love Moradale. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, and here he comes. Okay. Anyway, wait, dad, let me just answer Elon really quickly. Um, Hi, so I Hi, think Moradale. that, I think that, okay. okay. I think that one of the things also that Elon's, um, getting at is that if we had had maybe even more confidence or more um, connection to what those laws and those practices were, we wouldn't have even needed to worry about whether or not the nations around us cared. So I think that to, to your last point of like, we should have just wanted to do them and been connected to them. I then wonder if the if the question to those people were, did you understand why you were doing them or what the purpose was for those hukim and mishpatim, right? For those laws and for those understandings, because if you didn't understand them, then then you might not feel any connection to them. And then you are comparing yourselves outwardly because you want to know why these other people around you aren't doing something that you also don't find connection with. So may, that's like a little bit, coming from me, a little bit more of like a meta question in terms of what did the people even feel connected to in that time? And is that why there was this comparison? Well, it's, I mean, it's particularly interesting to me since we saw parallel construction in a few of these verses before this one, we saw Chukimu Mishpatim, Chukimu Mishpatim, I think two different times. I think it's really interesting that here it says just the Chukim, which of, right, the, right. of the categories, right, the, the paradigmatic example of a Chuk is like para aduma. Why right. do we do para aduma? I don't know, because it says so in the Torah, right? Like there, there are lots of mitzvot that are given that are more in the category of mishpatim, that there seems to be a reason given for them. But there are Chukim that it just sort of says, hey, this is what you do. So I think it's particularly interesting, this verse. I found one or two pieces. I don't know that I found a satisfying like response to it, but I think it's interesting that that is the category. I, yeah. I would think the verse would make more sense if it said kol hamishvatim ha'ela rather than yeah. kol hachukim ha'ela. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Joanna. So in our discussion so far, we keep talking about the laws in the plural, we're using words, these, the chukim, the mishpatim. Mm-hmm. And yet it says in the verse, ki hi chokhmatchem, that because it, one thing, singular, right? So are oh, we just referring here that the references to the Torah, because in the Torah itself also in the verse before and in this verse, it's referring to plural. Um, and even in our verse, right, it says kola chukim ha'ele, plural all of these laws, and yet here is the singular pronoun. So, I mean, we can kind of infer that the singular is like a reference to like the singularity of like all of the the Torah is one thing, but, or is there some significance to the particular thing that is going to bring Chochmah and Bina? That's great. 
Based on some of the commentaries that I found, some of the ones that got Rabbi Shapiro really going, so I'm excited to to have him share them with you. Um, It seems to be that that the the singularity here is around a certain topic, um, which the way that you said it, I actually appreciated much more than the way that the commentators have um, have kind of ascribed that one topic to to being what the chokhmah and the bina was. Um, but I do, I love the drash around whether this is the full Torah, right? Like kind of grasping everything to be able to then find the chokhmah and bina in that. Or, or is it, and this wouldn't grammatically necessarily work, so this is where, you know, a drash would come into play, is it that it's a singular people, right? That in order to find that chokhmah and bina, you actually have to find the, 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 the communal aspect of everybody finding that, finding that um, guarding and that uh, the, the, the shamor and the asitem, right? The, the, the doing and also the keeping um, together as one community to then be able to find that chokhman bina. Uh, but I, yes, thank you for pointing out those, those different pieces. Okay, Renee, and then we're going to move on to commentaries. But there's also from like what we talked about before that uh, amongst the, uh, the more right wing from people that, that we should just accept the fact that we have to do these commandments. And right. Listen to them. Right. And it's not our job to challenge anything. We just are supposed to observe and so because that's what God want has commanded. Sure. I mean, I think, I, I think that, that that's hard, obviously in terms of like how we practice Right. We, we, the community of Dombevan practice our Judaism, but also I think for these people, right, going into a land without their leader, to go back to last week's class, right, the fact that they are going to have to know what to do and how to, how to put it to use without someone saying, and this is how, right, there, there needs to be, going back to part of what Elon said, there needs to be um, some feeling and some connection, not just you were told to do this, so you should now do this, right? Anybody knows that if you tell, for example, a conversion student, if you say before you convert, you need to keep kosher and you need to keep Shabbat. Okay, well, the first like few weeks, they're going to be able to do those things, even if there's no meaning behind it, because it's like doing a homework assignment, right? I'm going to mark all these things off of a checklist and make sure that I do all the right things. But unless they find connection in those parts of their existence, right, of their Jewish identity, they're not going to continue to keep kosher and they're not going to continue to keep Shabbat because that that connection will have gone away. So the knowing that you have to do it, right, which I put in quotes because what does that really even mean either, that that isn't enough, right, both for the people but also for us in the 21st century in order to know what it is that we need to hold on to for our own Judaism. I mean, I think that's true for the people who are converting who you, I mean, you, because you work with 8,000 conversion students, but the, the, even those of us who get one or two once in a while. I mean, I, I, I think I, I think that's true for the folks who you work with. But there oh, are, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. But, but, but there are also people in the world, like, there are people who are, who join communities and they're told what to do. And they say, okay, and they do it, right? Like, totally. like not not everyone, you know, 
in, in, in some ways, I mean, the, the movement or the community you join, I think, is a, as much like your sort of temperament and like your worldview as it is anything else, right? There yeah. are definitely people who just want to be told what to do. And you tell them right. to keep kosher, you tell them to keep Shabbat, you tell them to vote a certain way, you tell them to, you know, whatever it is that right. they say, okay, thank you for telling me what to do. Right. You know, there's, there are, there are plenty of those folks as well. They are not often the people who will work with one of the rabbis at Temple Beth Am to go through the conversion process, but right. there are plenty of those, there are plenty of those people out there, plenty of those Jews out there. Totally. Okay. And I think that, I mean, part of, Part of the challenge, now this is like a completely different class. So we'll get back to the topic in one second, but part Ah, of doing my job, part of some of the, um, I don't know, angst, maybe I don't, I don't, tension, that's a better word. Angst. Okay. Part of some of the tension I think with the conservative movement is just that, right? That there are certain things that we want to say, but this is halacha and Yes, we've now found connection to it, but that's why we're going to do it. And then you you walk into a liberal uh, modern experience and you think to yourself, wait a second, I now, I now feel like this is something I should be doing, but also it's limiting me to be able to experience X, Y, or Z. So I, I totally agree with you. And I think that within, like, I'll just speak for myself, like within my own Jewish practice, there are those moments of like, well, I know what to do, so just tell me what to do. Oh, but wait, that's going to be hard for me to do in, my, in the practice of my actual life. So I need to find connection to it so that I so that I know that it's something that I'm not just doing because I'm being told to, but rather because I actually have feeling around it. I have a really hard time with, I have my, maybe this is why you get more convergence and I have more angst around it. Today is, can today, the, word, the word of the day is angst. No, contronym is the word of the day. It's angst. Um, you- I, I want to be welcoming. I think we we benefit from people who are drawn to Judaism, who care about Judaism, who join the Jewish people. I think it, I think in general that is a good thing. And I think and I love that we are welcoming and we find ways to let people in and we find ways to help people find meaning. And. I have been on more than one bait dean, often with people who I have brought forth as conversion candidates, where people have said things like, you know, I just love about Judaism that you can come and you can find your meaning with it and you don't get told too much what to do and you can just really like, and it's like, uh, uh, not really, right? Like, like, I mean, and that's how it's been presented to them is that we want you to find meaning and we want you to find connection. And it's, you know, that, that's very personal. And that's true. And there are still normative standards for what it is. And that's a very difficult, and that's a very difficult dance. I have a really hard yeah. time with that. Um, I have, I have not yet found, found a way to, to navigate that successfully, but Rabbi Shabbat's probably have. Okay. Um, what right? you, yeah. I mean, yeah. And we could, I mean, we could talk about conversion for a long time, but yeah, I mean, I think with my, at least with the students that I work with, one of the things that's most important to me is knowing where they are now, but knowing also where they want to go because those Hukim and Mishpatim, again, back to Elon's point are only going to, are only going to sit well with them and continue to be part of their Jewish identity. If they can actually tell me where they are now, but also like what the steps are for them to want to 
either do more or experience more or feel more connected, right? I mean, it took me until rabbinical school to, to find a connection to tefillin. And it was something that I was on a journey to do for a long time. I don't expect my conversion students necessarily to find that, especially female conversion students to find that connection that quickly. And it's something that if they start to think about ritual objects, that maybe they will find that connection and and find themselves practicing those things later on down the line. So I think a lot of it has to do with just education and experience and um, and exposure to then want to do those things. Okay. Um, so though this is tangentially related, why don't we get back to the verse and why don't you why don't you go because your rant is longer than anything I'm going to say. I, I I'm I don't want to do that rant again. I mean I I don't what I don't I found other stuff. You can oh. you can. All right, go ahead. I don't even, I only vaguely remember what the rant was about. Um, two days ago. I know a lot has happened in two days. Um, I I found I found there there are two different places in the Talmud where this verse is cited, and they seem to be presenting very different ways about thinking about how Jews relate to other nations. So I think it's interesting to like sort of juxtapose them one with the other. And then maybe Rabbi Schatz will, will cue me up for a rant Um, or she can rant. Rabbi Schatz, how come you never rant? That's, that's I think that's like a, a very, I think that's a big question that we probably don't have to go into right now. Okay. Um, So the, I, I think it's fair to say that, like, the general rabbinic worldview is mixed on how Jews should relate to the other nations. That might be, like, the nicest possible way of saying it. So particularly when it comes to this verse, there there are different ways of reflecting on, well, what what does this say about how we should be interacting with the other nations? One of them actually presents a fairly, like, like I would say, I would say, I think positive way of reflecting on this. Um, and the Gemara asked the question on, on our verse in terms of um, this idea of Chochmatchem and Binatchem, what, what is your Chochmah and Binah that the other nations are going to be impressed by? And it answers its own rhetorical question. This is the calculation of astronomical seasons and the movement of constellations as the calculation of experts is witnessed by all, right? So there is, there is a wisdom that we, the Jewish people have learned that isn't just applicable for us, but it's actually helpful for everyone. And so what is that? It's our astronomical expertise. And that then is what we should transmit out into the other nation. So I, I just thought that that was an interesting piece in terms of thinking about this sense of how do we relate to the other nations of the world? What might we have to offer? Because, well, they're probably not going to follow the ritual of the red heifer necessarily. So I thought it was interesting to see that, you know, sort of very specific reading of what what that chokhmah that we're meant to transmit is. So that's on the sort of like playing nice with others end of the spectrum. And on the other hand, um, in Masechet Avodazara, we we didn't. No one picked up on on this specific wording too much. Um, but the, at the beginning of the verse, when it says "le'enei ha'amim," like in front of the the eyes of the other nations, 
Um, what is that? And like, why does it, why does it say Eneha and Amim? Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi says, all of the mitzvot that the Jewish people perform in this world will come and strike the faces of the nations of the world in the world to come. I saw that and I was like, I really hope that Rabbi Shapiro understands anything that that is saying. Oh, like, no, I mean, I think it's like, if, if you, it, it, I think he's playing with the A part, he's playing with, with the correct with with what's going on here, right? Le Ineha Amim. Why does it why does it say Dafka Le Ineha Amim? Ah, because of course that in the world to come, the mitzvot of the Jews are gonna come and smack the other nations of the world right in the eye. Ha ha, we were right and you were wrong. But what does that mean? It's Does that going, mean that in the world to come, that that everybody who's not Jewish is now going to see that our that our mitzvot were correct, and now they're going yeah. to start following them? Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that that's a big part of Jewish eschatology. Yeah, I don't like that. I, I mean, I'm not saying I I like it, or I think Elon is pulling his his non hair out over there. <laughs> um, but but I, I, I'm not saying I like it. I just think it's interesting to to see those two pieces from Talmud juxtaposed with each other. Yeah, yeah. Right. That that these are reasonably contemporaneous teachings. Those are the two places in the Talmud where this verse shows up. On the one hand, haha, we're right, you're wrong. On the other hand, we have something to offer and we're going to share it. Yeah. Without, without judgment, right? Without a we're right and you're wrong. So I I think it's just interesting to see those those two pieces um, sort of set up next to each other. I'm not saying I like the second piece, but it's definitely yeah. interesting. Denise and then Renee. So just thinking about the the astronomical part. Um, so first, it, it just kind of jumped out at me because in archaeology, like a lot of the ancient people were really, really interested in astronomy and solstice and all this kind of stuff. Um, and now, like when modern scholars look at these ancient societies, that's one of the things that makes those people get taken seriously as people. So like even in Tonga, they have this like solstice thing and everything. Oh, wow. They were so advanced and so intellectual and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the societies where we don't have those records, they're not always looked upon. They're, they're looked upon almost like second tier intellectually. So I thought that was kind of interesting, like it just sort of puts us on that world stage. Totally. And, but then also, like in this next part that we were talking about, of you know, everyone's going to see we were right or whatever. Um, maybe just like thinking about the specifically the astronomy part, it, it's sort of like Hashem Echad, like, like there's no disagreement, like. Whatever they figured out in Tonga is the same thing they figured out in northern England and in the Maya Peninsula because, like, the sun is the sun and it's there. And so it, maybe it's referring to just everyone's going to be sort of clear that there's one reality in the world and we can all be there together. Yeah, I, I, I think when it comes to, you know, the, the way that our tradition thinks about the end of days, right? When we ha- when we think about um, the, the eschatology that we have, it, it's pretty clear that there is a sense that there will be a collection of all of the nations and we will all recognize the oneness of God and then we'll go from there. Th- there is some question about like, 
how <laughs> how harmonious or how aggressive that experience will be right uh, it's pretty consistent in terms of the messaging that like there's a version of that that's going to happen and sometimes it's a sense of much more kumbaya and sometimes it's a sense of there's really going to be some some tush kicking that tush kicking that goes down uh in order to to get there so i agree that like yeah there's going to be that that recognition and bayomahu right like that that's what's going to go down um but but there is some question about like how you know how much conflict there's going to be um to get there and and this piece from the gemara seems to be pretty chazak in terms of its sense of what's of how that's all going to go down Renee. so i was just curious as to if it, based on what you said earlier does that mean that that the other nations will assume that oh in order to for them to get whatever they're going to have to like convert and be like the jews the, the sense that I got from that passage was that, yeah, that there's going to be like, like some real contrition and, oh my God, we can't believe we didn't see this before. Um, and now we're going to, you know, hop on board the, the Jewish party train is my sense of it. Rabbi Schatz hated it so much. She left the class entirely. Yeah. Elon. So I, it seems curious that we would aspire to everyone uh, uh, observing the same rituals that we do, it, it, it's not it's not foreign to my understanding that we would want everyone to observe kind of the basic right. uh, um, noadic laws, right? Don't kill, don't steal, uh, those kind of things. We that's certainly part of our tradition. It, it seems odd that in this that that interpretation says not only do we want them to observe those things, but we but we we want them to observe the minutia uh, as well. That that's the part I'm uncomfortable with, and um, it, it it and it and once again it doesn't seem relevant to us. Meaning that we should do it because we want to do it. And if the other people look at us and say, "Wow, this is a good example," we would like to do it as well. Great, but that should not be what drives us. Um, and you know, the, uh, what, the other point I'd like to make is the Anayim thing kind of reminds me of, uh, the, the Morris Ion, uh, concept, which is, uh, if you eat a, uh, impossible burger with a, you shouldn't eat an impossible burger with a piece of cheese on it because somebody might walk by and say, oh, I know that Elon keeps kosher and he's eating a hamburger. He's eating a cheeseburger that must be okay. Um, once again, I don't, I don't, hold to that because I actually don't particularly care what anyone else thinks, right? So, um... Yeah, I, I, I will say this about the the passage in the Gemara. I mean, we don't, we don't paskin by the Gemara, right? We don't, it's it, it's not necessary, just because something is said in the Gemara, that doesn't mean that it's held up as like the normative standard, right? This is one rabbi's opinion in Talmud, it's recorded, I don't, like, there isn't much on it that gets drawn specifically out from there, and it, it is interesting to see. It's definitely like we don't hear much more from that rabbi in terms of then, therefore, what are the expected meets vote that all of the other nations of the world will follow? Um, and is it meant to be they're going to hit them in the face and that sort of has like a they'll realize they were wrong and that will be like shameful to them to them or it'll hit them in the face and then therefore they should keep all of the meets vote that it isn't clear from there. There isn't much more on it. Um, but it is it is an interesting passage. 
um, Ilan, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the Marit Ayin piece. Um, and I think very well explained and thank you for that. I have a really hard time with that. I think performative Judaism is very, very tricky, right? How do you know when you should do something just because you don't want someone to see you doing something that they might think that you would be doing, but it's not what you're doing, but you want to make sure that they don't even think that you might've done that thing. Um, it's really tricky. Um, and I'll just say personally, as someone who, you know, made, made the choice even as like a teenager to keep wearing his kippah going to public high school, um, developed uh, some fascinating neuroses uh, around what Ma'arit Ayn would, would, you know, entail just trying to grow up and be a person, right? But, oh my God, what if people see me doing that and what will that mean? You know, exhausting. Um, I, I don't know. Rabbi Schatz, what do you think? I wonder what Rabbi Schatz thinks about Ma'arit Ayn. About Ma'arit Ayn? I, I mean, I... Yeah, I think it's tricky. I think I think it's something that that we as rabbis, which I very I I hate kind of like using us as a different category because I don't think that in many ways we are. This is one that I just can't speak for any other profession. But Rabbi Schatz is saying she thinks she's better than everybody. Yeah, that is exactly what I just said. Um, but that Rabbi uh, Rabbi Artson, I remember when we started. Started, um, when we started rabbinical school, Rabbi Artson said, from this day forward, you are going to be seen as a rabbi, even though, you know, I hadn't even taken my first class yet. I was sitting in the Beit Midrash, you know, for orientation. And, and you don't believe that until you're actually out of rabbinical school and you walk into the grocery store and someone wants to talk to you about the sermon you just gave and you're in the grocery store after you worked out, you're sweaty and gross, you know, like you, you're a person. So you went to the grocery store after you did all these other things. And then you realize that, 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 that doesn't change no matter where you are. And so that Marit Ayin piece, it, I think about it every time I leave my house, <laughs> right? That what am I buying at a grocery store? If someone were to see what I was buying, though I'm extremely comfortable with it in terms of kashrut, would someone else see something in my basket and think, can you, can you, are you allowed to eat that? Right. And, and that's not because of me, Rebecca Schatz. That's because of the title of rabbi. So I think Mar, and, and it goes vice, maybe it's not vice versa, but it goes in the opposite direction of like, my my wearing of tefillin, right? I talked about this a little bit right after the um, right after we came back in person for Minion. My wearing of tefillin is in some ways um, much more performative than I would like it to be, right? When I was davening at home alone behind a screen, I didn't often feel the interest or connection or need to put on tefillin. But when I'm at Betham, I would never think of not wearing tefillin because in that setting, it's, it's an important thing to our community and to me. So though that's not Marit Ayn in the same way, there is this idea of like, how are other people seeing me, seeing us? And what do we do to make ourselves comfortable? I think, I don't think it always has to do with what makes other people comfortable, but what makes us comfortable in front of other people. Um, I think it's a, it's a trick. I mean, it, it's woven throughout this whole beginning part of Dvarim in terms of like Moses is going away and he's trying to figure out what's what's the right message, right? It's like kind of almost a PR question. Like, yeah. what's the right messaging to get B'nai Israel to like keep them on track, 
even after he's gone? Is it carrot? Is it stick? It's, is it yeah. be mindful of how other people are going to be looking at you? Is it because, you know, that time had become that, that time I can be on Hayom. I got to sing again for Rabbi Shatz, right? Is it because it, it's life giving to you, right? Like what, what is, is it, you know, some of column A, some of column B, right? What's, what's the right messaging to get us to do the things that will hold us together as a people? Um, which if that was a question 3000 years ago, it's certainly a question, <laughs> certainly a question now. Um, well, and, and I think, I, mean, I, I, I think, don't know that we've come up with a good answer yet, but it, it's tough. I think also back to the point of, you know, why, how do we do this for other people? Sometimes even within our own, again, I'll just speak for myself, but sometimes within our own kind of journeys of Judaism, we try out different kinds of Judaisms to figure out which one works best with us. And I know that when I was in college and I, I became much more involved with a much more orthodox kind of community on campus, the fact that I had grown up, and I'm not just saying this because my dad can hear me, but the fact that I had grown up in a very conservative Jewish household made it actually that much easier to be in that community because I still had a strong identity and who I was. So I could see the beauty in these other things that were going on around me, but there was never a fear of me saying, oh, well, let's try that because that looks so much better. And I feel the same about interfaith relations and, and uh, you know, looking to other religions to see what they do well, because if I see a Muslim community doing something really beautifully or a Christian community doing something really beautifully to bring in their members or to create community, why not try that out in, in a Jewish community, right? Why not try that at Temple Beth Am? I'm not asking to put a crucifix, you know, in front of the ark or, or, uh, start taking, taking on, uh, prayer customs like the Muslim community. But if there are certain. That was in the original blueprints for the new sanctuary. Right. Yeah. But it, but there are certain things that if you feel rooted in, in the identity that you have, looking outside can be a beautiful influence and doesn't have to just be, um, a something that you'd be nervous about in terms of assimilation, but can be a really beautiful way of looking to the outside to bring those things in. Um, yeah. I think you, I think you, you snuck a really important revision of a word in there, which is Judaisms. Right. And I think that the way that I think about different aspects of Jewish practice, theology, peoplehood is different now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, and yeah. will hopefully be different five or 10 years ago from now. Not, not to mention, you know, that the way I, the, the reasoning for why I keep kosher the way I keep kosher and keep Shabbat the way that I keep Shabbat and the way that I, you know, do different things and, and understand different aspects of Judaism those don't necessarily all line up cleanly together, right? Like there, there are different interpretations and understandings for all of those pieces that sort of get crunched together in a vaguely coherent way, hopefully some of the time, but it's not like my, my Kashrut theology lines up with my Shabbat theology lines up with my Tfilah theology, right? Like, Part of the reason I add in the Imahot to my Amidah is not because I think it's like 
the the right liturgical like like the it, there's as much a cultural reason for why I do that as there is like a specific liturgical understanding for why that still works, right? So I think opening it up in terms of thinking about the different ways and reasons why we do certain things, I think that's that's really important because it it breaks it out of like a hermetically sealed sealed box and and leaves it much more open. It's more complicated because it's not just one thing, but I think it's important. Yeah, Alan. Yeah, I would be disappointed if what drove people in observance is external perception, right? I hope that what I do, I do because it's meaningful to me. And if it bothers somebody uh, that I go to Smith and Walensky's and have a piece of tuna because people think I'm kosher, I particularly don't care, right? right? Because that's Mm -hmm. what my comfort level and that's what it, that I, I feel that within my definition of kashrut, that's comfortable to me. And particularly with religious things, I, I can't really concern myself with other people's perceptions. It's not. And there, I think part of the problem with uh, orthodoxy in many cases is that people do things because for appearance sake, as opposed to for uh, true kavanah, right? What's really meaningful to them. And, and that's, the more I think about it, that's really what is disturbing about this particular um, verse is that it's encouraging you to do it for other people as opposed to for yourself. I also, I would take it even one step further than that. I, I completely agree. And the the step that I would take is, at least for me, if I'm to go to an unhectured restaurant, which I learned from Rabbi Aaron Alexander, not to say unkosher restaurant, because you can still eat something kosher at an unhectured restaurant. Um, but if I go to an unhectured restaurant and I eat something that, as you just said, I'm very comfortable eating, that if someone were to see me eat that and wonder, I see that as a, as a moment to be able to also teach around the possibility of kashrut in an unhectured restaurant. So So all the more so that if I'm comfortable with it and I know why I'm comfortable with it and I can explain why I'm comfortable with it, then also I get to teach why it's okay to be comfortable with that. And maybe that also influences in a really beautiful way other people's Judaisms. To to Elon specifically, the first time that I asked you about leaving before Musaf, was a learning. I, I was going to say something about that too. Was a learning experience for me, right? It's something that you, that you rightfully so feel very deeply about, and and have reasoning that is rooted in not just I I feel like I can leave now, but really rooted in 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 uh, in personal preference and learning and and really Jewish education. And to then be able to have an answer, I think that's the most important part. Is if there's no answer, then then what's then what's the the point in doing something outwardly that that you might be comfortable with, but others might see as dis, as uncomfortable? The fact that you can share that with people, or I can share my tuna sandwich. Uh, Rabbi Shetz, you maybe want to give not everyone might know Elon's specific. Oh, Elon can around- explain it. I don't need to explain it for him. <laughs> yeah, so the uh the one of the main parts of the Musaf service is discussing the return of animal sacrifice to the uh tradition. And given that 
given that that is not something that I aspire to, I, I find it, um, it's not comfortable for me to, to, to pray for that. Right. So I choose to, to uh, get up and, 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 and leave most of the time. There's sometimes I'll stay around. There's a specific reason, but it's just not. um, And even if one were to say, well, it's not really uh, praying for return of animal sacrifice. It's only in a figurative sense for the restoration of, of the, of the great temple in Jerusalem, that's not even something that I aspire to because the only way to do that would be to blow up the Dome of the Rock. And I am not willing to blow up the Dome of the Rock and cause World War III in order to restore the temple. So there's no circumstance under which I'm comfortable with that, uh, with that concept. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here first, folks. Elon Spar not in favor of starting World War Three. But, um, but also, but, like but, a really well, beautiful example of exactly what I was just trying to share, yeah. right? Like now, you all learn something about a practice that otherwise you might just think, "Oh, Elon has lunch to get to," right? There's there's actual meaning behind it, and and I agree that the I, that the perception of that which we do as long as you're doing it intentionally should be done without guilt and should be done so that if someone asks you, you can share it. And then that becomes more, even more education. I, I think there's another piece here that, that we haven't named this whole time that I know we're, we're, I don't, I don't know if this will wrap things up, but I think, but I think it's, it's important because Rabbi Schatz and I have both ra- Rabbi Beitenu, some of us more successfully than others, um, it kicked me out after a year. So, uh, <laughs> but Rabbi Schatz and I have each rabbi in Beitenu. Um, and I, Ilan, I remember very clearly, you came up to me at one point and you're like, just so you know, I'm not leaving after the Torah study because I didn't like something that you said, right? <laughs> you, you made a, you made a point of coming up and saying like, here's why, I, here's why I usually leave for Musa, right? So there was also a relational element there. Exactly. That I think is really, really important, right? That it, that there's a recognition, huh, this might read a certain way. This isn't why it is. I'm going to explain myself. And you did it very thoughtfully and kindly and intentionally, right? There, there was, there was, there was, and, and it actually built the relationship, right? Th- that I understood where you were coming from more deeply after you and I had that conversation. And I think for me, one of the, one of the, if not the most challenging thing about the whole Ma'arit Ayin business is, wait, so I'm now supposed to put my head in the mindset of a potentially judgmental person who's watching me. Like, that's terrible. Like, that's a deeply neurotic way to walk around in the world. Instead of saying, I'm going to conduct myself in such a way that hopefully there's some openness to relationship building and conversation around the choices that I'm making. And to, to try to pull that back into the verse, maybe we can hope, hope for some aspect of that, right? That when we look around and Rabbi Schatz is speaking this really nicely, when we look around and we see people of other faiths or other backgrounds or other Judaisms in terms of how they're doing things, that hopefully we can approach that with, curiosity and openness to build relationships and see the wisdom in what they're doing rather than coming at it from a place of judgment, which we each have a tendency to as well, right? Like, oh, that person's doing that thing differently. Why are they making that choice, right? To try to course correct from that into a place of greater openness and, uh, and curiosity, which is not always easy, but is really important. 
I, I'll just add one last, that was a beautiful way of ending. So I'm just gonna, I want to just add this piece, which is a pitch actually for something that's coming up in, um, at Betham. But I think one of, it's also the things that we don't do, right? It's not always just the things that we do do. Um, but the things that we, that we don't do and that we might have also reason behind those things. So at the, at the beginning of my time at Betham, I think I taught on the fact that I don't cover my hair at all. I don't even do it when I'm in shul davening a service. And many people had questions about that, mostly because Cantor Torney does. Um, and because also in the, in the concerning moment, many women choose to. Um, and the fact that I don't, that's a thing I don't do. That's not a thing I do do. <laughs> that's a thing I don't do, but I have reason around it and, and can back it up and, everybody has things like that, right? Whether you're a woman who doesn't wear a tallis or, uh, or you're someone who chooses to only eat in kosher restaurants. And so you have to have that, that boundary when you go to see congregate, right? Like there are different boundaries of things that we also just don't do that we, that we need to explain. And the pitch is that we're going to, I'm going to be um, really facilitating, not teaching, learning. I should use that word. Um, along with any, any woman who is interested about Hilchot Nida. And this is some, it's, the, it's not a class that is going to teach you how to practice Nida. And it's not a class that's going to teach you why Nida is necessary. But really, what, what are the reasons that our rabbis even created such a thing? And how is it seen as like a, a holy experience for women to be able to, um, understand, not necessarily embark on, but understand. So for women of, anyone who's identifying as a woman and of any age and of any stage of life. Um, again, this is not application of Hilchonida. It's just the learning of it. So if you're interested in, in that learning and where it comes from and the um, history and, and I would say beauty behind it, um, this is going to be a class on Sundays, every Sunday of August. So I hope that you will join us in that as well. Um, and thank you, Rabbi Shapiro. This was a great, a great conversation that you mostly uh, led us through. So thank you for that. And Yasha Koa. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.